Okay, um, let's just wait until it says recording. All right, we are recording. Are you there, Dave? I am. All right. Um, so a couple of revolutions that have come up um, that seem to be kind of uh, bourgeois revolutions or constitutional revolutions closer to the Young Turks than I'd say the 1917 Russia, but uh, definitely worth touching on. Yeah. So we've got not, the not only for the time li- timeline, but uh, they're they're connected. Everything is connected. Everything is connected. Um, so we'll start with the Persian Revolution, 1908 to 1909. So you'll remember when we did our Islam and imperialism episode, including the wars between Iran and Russia, where Russia gradually took over parts of the extended uh, Persian Empire. And England, meanwhile, imposed a particularly obnoxious um, monopoly contract for tobacco Mm. on the Shah. So the tobacco contract was to an individual Englishman, Major Talbot, a 50-year monopoly over distribution and export of tobacco, all in exchange for a 25,000-pound personal payment to the Shah, uh, 15,000 annual rent and a 25% share of the profits. In exchange, this one Englishman gets a 50-year monopoly over tobacco business, which was a huge business in Iran. And the effectively, the entire tobacco business mm-hmm. community is dumped. Yeah, this uh, is uh, chapter one of how to create an opposition for yourself. <laughs> yes. So all the leading bazaars, uh, Shiraz, Tehran, Isfahan, Tabriz, Mashhad, Qazvin, Yazd, and Kermanshah all go on a general strike. They issue a religious fatwa on tobacco. There's a consumer boycott. (laughs) Yeah. Thou shalt not smoke. (laughs) So he alienated the business community and the religious community with one stroke. Absolutely. Um, and so he reverses the concession. So Nasruddin Shah is thought of as someone who, like the Qajars are known for this, uh, this royal family. They're known for being a family that is able to really divide and rule. So different factions are played off against each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so he tries to do that. He shuts down some tea houses. He scapegoats some religious minorities. Uh, one contemporary writer, Mehdi Malekzadeh, says that the Shah mischievously instigated one group against another. So he keeps you, this up. And, oh, go ahead. Sorry, do you have any detail on which groups? Uh, I do later. In fact, oh. there are so many groups that I don't yeah. even know what they are. But I'll well, read was... them and our Iranian listeners can. Okay. Because I was reading about the Russian incursions in the Caucasus, and I didn't realize how many... Uh, basically Muslim groups, uh, you know, emigrated. They left and went went yeah. back to Persia. Yeah. Yeah, so here's here's some names of some types of groups. Maybe Sina, if he's listening, can tell me more about this. I, I think we have a lot of Iranian listeners, actually. But uh, Sheikhi and Mutashari, Karim Khani and Mutashari, uh, Muslim and Zoroastrian, that I know. Persian and Azeri, I guess, are ethnicities. And then Haidari and Nimati. I don't know what that is either. So these must be smaller denominations, maybe, or regions. But 
there's a lot of divisions to exploit for sure. Oh, by the way, I should say, I had hoped to use this book uh, by Edward Brown, which was like the Oxford Orientalist. And the book is published like a year or two <clears> after <throat> this Persian Revolution. So it's contemporary and it's the Orientalist book on the topic, like Orientalist in the sense of like, this is how they identified themselves. He's the expert on Persia in England. Uh, he's the Oxford professor of Persia. And um, 1910, it's published, Cambridge University Press. But uh, I didn't end up, It's it, he kind of assumes you already know everything. <laughs> so he's. it's more like a, the book is like kind of commenting on <laughs> what's happening rather than really telling me what's happening. So I ended up using a section of Ervind Abrahanian's um, Iran Between Two Revolutions. Okay, uh, I, I, I came across yeah. some groups, um, Azerbaijanis, Caucasian Azerbaijanis, mm -hmm. and um, uh, North Caucasian Muslims who are who are mentioned as uh, Circassians. That's a really old term. Uh, Lesgins who were Shia and Laks, L-A-K-S. I have to wow. read more about find out who these people are. Yeah, I mean, I, I know about Dagestanis and. And Chechens, but that's yeah. the, those are the only Muslims I know about from that part of the world. And I only know about those because of MMA. <laughs> oh, okay. They're, they're Chechens and Dagestanis are doing very well in the uh, Ultimate Fighting Championship. That's one cases. way to get your history. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I do want to read you Edward Brown's poem, though. It's it's uh, it's It's so cheesy that I have to read it. Because uh, we can also dedicate this episode to the same uh, people that um, that Edward Brown dedicated the Persian Revolution of 1905. To all who by their thought, word, or deed have aided Persia in her hour of need, whether by tongue or pen or sword they wrought, whether they strove or suffered, spoke or fought, whether their services were small or great, this book of mine I humbly dedicate. May these approve my poor attempt to trace this final effort of an ancient race to burst its bondage, cast aside its chain, and rise to life a nation once again. <laughs> it's a little, it's a little over the top, you know. Uh, I've read worse. <laughs> so, so, um, so after Nasreddin Shah is assassinated in 1896, um, he, uh, he's succeeded by Muzaffar Shah. So Muzaffar Shah has a 10-year uh, reign. Uh, he raises taxes. He reopens the country to foreign business. He sells another monopoly, an oil monopoly, to one Mr. Darcy. Will William uh, Knox Darcy, not not the guy from the novels. <laughs> tell me, do you, what can you tell me about him, anything? Uh, he was basically middle-class English, went out to Australia and got lucky with gold mines. Okay. And made a fortune and then uh, decided to invest in uh, Persia. He he never actually went to Persia, so he's just a name. <laughs> Mr. Darcy. Uh, yeah. They give road, Muzaffar gives road tolls, uh, monopoly to the Imperial Bank of Britain. He, bar he loves to go to Europe, so he borrows hundreds of thousands of pounds just for individual trips to Europe. So he borrows 200,000 from France. Three million pounds from Russia, mainly to refinance previous loans, and three hundred thousand for a single trip to London for him and his entourage. Oh. 
He appoints a Belgian named Monsieur Naus, N-A-U-S. No, 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 Naus, Naus. I'm going to call him Naus, uh, to be the Director General of Customs. And he reduces some, to some degree, repression and censorship of media. Um, and in the in the t- in this time, Persia also gets its first joint stock company, the Shirkat e Islami. So a group of intellectuals start a journal called Ganje e Fonun and the Society of Learning, the Anjuman e Muarif. They open a national library, 55 private schools, and one of their leaders, Motakalamin, is inspired by Japan. He writes, education shows us to how to build power plants, steam engines, factories, railways, and other essential prerequisites of modern civilization. Education has enabled Japan to transform itself in one generation from a backward weak nation into an advanced powerful nation. Education likewise will enable Iran not only to regain its ancient glory, but to create a new generation that will be conscious of individual equality, social justice, personal liberty, and human progress. I don't believe this, by the way. You and I are both in the education business, but this is over. This is overstating what we can do, I think. But it is interesting. We've seen this before with the Young Turks and with others, just how inspired they were by Japan's yeah. victory over Russia yeah. in, in a way that they were not inspired by Ethiopia's victory over Italy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah but but Japan true. winning the Russo-Japanese War yeah. was absolutely electric for everybody being colonized in to one degree or another yeah and they're uh, they look like the the model well maybe it's this education thing right maybe it is yeah i mean how do we copy what the uh, abyssinians did mm-hmm. but we can copy what japan did yeah they think they think uh so there are secret societies five of them Uh, The Secret Center, which has a core group of radicals, the Social Democratic Party, which is influenced by Russia's 1905 revolution, and it's popular with oil workers who travel back and forth to Baku in the Tsardom, in Tsarist Russia, and are based in Azerbaijan. There's the Society of Humanity, who are followers of French socialists like Saint-Simon and Auguste Comte. Wow. Um, Yeah. Yeah, Society of Humanity. They called, uh, I think one of them called himself Monsieur because <laughs> he was so into French. <laughs> or they made fun of him and called him Monsieur. Okay. Um, there's the Revolutionary <clears throat> Committee, which is a core group of intellectuals who want to overthrow tyranny and establish the rule of law and justice. So they're close to the religious. And the Secret Society, which is mostly middle class and business and lower professional types. So early 1905, there's a very bad harvest. There's a cholera epidemic. There's the Russian Revolution and the Russo-Japanese War. There's also inflation. Uh, Price of sugar goes up 33%. The price of wheat goes up by 90%. The government responds by raising taxes, Mm. which is never a good move in the middle of a big inflation. Uh, So there are three big protests, all of which have uh, come to historical memory. One is uh, 200 shopkeepers during the Shia month of mourning, the month of Muharram, petitioned the government to fire the Belgian director general of the treasury, Monsieur Naus, and repay the loans that are owed by the government to them. Uh, Muzaffar Shah, he's desperate to go to Europe on a trip. This protest interrupts it. So he says, listen, I'll go on my trip. Let me go on my trip. I'll come back. I'll dismiss Naus and repay the debts. He doesn't do any of that. 
So there's another protest in December. The governor, it happens when the governor of Tehran, who's trying to bring down the price of sugar, he brings in two of the sugar merchants, sugar importers, and has them beaten badly. One of them is 79 years old and very well liked in the community. <clears throat> so You've got bastinado here. That's particularly nasty. Uh, tell me more about it. Cause that's, I didn't... that's beating the soles of the feet. Oh, God. And it does permanent damage I, you're you're crippled after that you can't walk yeah so they did that to to including a 79 year old oh merchant good so there's a big march of 2000 people they sit at sit in kind of at abdulazim and demand the dismissal of naus again the establishment of a house of justice and a replacement of the governor the government gives in uh, and for the first time, there's chanting, long live the nation of Iran, after a protest. So that's uh -oh. uh, kind of a different consciousness, nationalism. Um, <clears throat> 1906, the following Muharram, the following month of mourning, uh, a year later, uh, the Shah still hasn't dismissed the Belgian <laughs> director general Naus <laughs> or convened a house of justice. And they also arrest a preacher for preaching against the government. Um you know, the, the preacher has this speech, which uh, Abraham Yad quotes at length, but it's just sort of like where everything is owned by foreigners, the government doesn't do anything for us, standard kind of lament. Um, but there's a march on the police station where the preacher is being held and the police shoot one of the demonstrators. The next day, there's an even bigger march of thousands of people for the funeral of the demonstrator. And they are attacked by Iranian Cossacks. Persia, mm -hmm. the, the, the Shah has a Cossack unit. Yeah, many of these Caucasian immigrants. Yeah. So a Cossack is, remind me? <laughs> <clears throat> well, Cavalrymen? Yeah, they're horsemen. They uh, like to preserve a certain degree of independence so that they can roam around and do their thing. But in return, they will provide military service. So they're often used as uh, bodyguards or enforcers. The Russians have been using them that way for a couple of centuries by now. And uh, I guess the Shah decided he could have his own. <laughs> yeah, they they become important in this revolution. Well, and uh, ethnically speaking, they're not uh, quite the same as the mass of Iranians or Persians, yeah. right? So yeah. maybe they don't have that feeling that, you know, we're hurting our own people. Attachment, yeah, they're not, they're not attached in the same way. Uh, so 22 people are killed, 100 plus are injured, and now uh, the religious leaders are particularly angry. They um, start comparing the Shah and the Sh uh, Qajar ro royal family to Yazid, the Sunni leader who killed the most important Shia religious uh, leader or religious, I don't know, saint or figure, religious figure, Imam Hussein. <clears throat> right. So that's a big deal to compare that. Um, 2,000 people march to Qum outside of Tehran and religious leaders declare that they basically go on strike against the Shah. It's an ulama strike. No religious services until the Shah fulfills his promises. Then there's a huge sit in at the British, like basically a um, peaceful kind of occupation of the British legation. <laughs> Eventually, there come to be a peak of 14,000 people in the garden of the legation, 500 tents. Um, and they start 
a lecture series at wow. Open Air Political Science University. Uh, start lecturing on all kinds of political topics, the importance of a republic, uh, religious freedom, all this kind of stuff. Uh, and the British, uh, after the fact, they said that they didn't damage anything in the British legation, except, of course, all the flowers were trampled and some pious inscriptions into the bark of the trees. Where did this um, idea come from? I know, right? I don't know. It must be because even in the 1979 uh, revolution, um, there's a lot of these kinds of nonviolent actions. Um, so it's an interesting, yeah, it's 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 very interesting to to see that. Um, so the committee starts from a demand uh, for a house of justice, but over the course of the occupation and all these lectures and readings and studies that they do, they change their mind. By the end of the occupation, they're looking for a constituent national assembly. So the royal court says, how about an Islamic assembly? And the, uh, the assembled consti- uh, demonstrators say, no, it has to be a national assembly. And eventually the royal court capitulates. Um, the royal court called the Majlis. That was the name of the parliament? Oh, yeah, that's the name of the parliament. Yeah. Um, so on August 5th, 1906, Muzaffar Shah appoints Mushir Adawle as the prime minister and convenes a constituent national assembly. So the constituent national... So basically without firing a shot, Dave, they... They do a nonviolent occupation and they get a national assembly. I mean, shots were fired at them. Yeah, <laughs> <guess>. yeah. <clears throat> but without showing much violence, you know, with their sit-in, they end up with the estates general yeah. stage. Yeah. Now they've yeah. got their constituent assembly and. And so they prepare the electoral law, and the electoral law is fairly complex, not exactly what I would call universal suffrage. Their electorate is divided into six classes, each of which have separate electoral representation. There's the royal family and the princes, the religious scholars, the nobles, the notables, as a separate from the nobles, uh, merchants, landowners, and then tradesmen who have a certain amount of capital. Or rent, who pay a certain amount of rent. There's also 156 constituencies. Uh, the capital, Tehran, has 60 seats out of 156, and the entire populous province of Azerbaijan has 12. <laughs> so <laughs> not exactly demographically weighted either. Um, there's a requirement that parliamentary candidates must speak, read, and write Persian with a high illiteracy rate in the country. That's also undemocratic. That's also um, discriminating against a lot of these uh, yep. immigrant groups from the Caucasus, I imagine. Exactly. Uh, each class cho- chooses, and it's a two-stage election, uh, each class chooses delegates and the delegates nominate provincial representatives. This is so. this is so much like the Estates General in the French Revolution with, <laughs> you know, the French had three, basically three groups separated by social class and, and they have six. Yeah. So in Tehran, the princes sent four uh, landowners send 10, the clergy send 4, the merchants send 10, and the guilds send 32. So the guilds have some weight, but I guess they're divided among themselves. And some of the less respected professions, like porters and camel drivers, don't have any representation. Right. There's a huge, um, you know, diversity of, 
of media, press, newspapers, newsletters, societies, and political societies, branches, all coming out and taking positions relative to what the Constituent Assembly should have and what the National Assembly should have. Um, 1906, the National Assembly opens and it's quickly divided into three groups, the Royalists, the Moderates, and the Liberals. Um, and they, they decide on a fundamental law that makes the Parliament very strong. They give the statement that the Parliament is the representative of the whole people. Uh, their Shah is allowed to appoint a Senate, an upper house, but the role of the Senate will be decided by the lower house. And by the way, the Senate never convenes for the next 43 years. <laughs> oh. uh, Muzaffar Shah ratifies the uh, fundamental law of the National Assembly and then promptly dies. He dies five days after. So he's succeeded by Muhammad Ali Shah who tries to reverse the revolution, dismisses Mushir Daole, um, uh, appoints Ali Asghar Khan, Amin al-Sultan, who's a conservative prime minister. He tries to play all these communal divisions. Um, but it's, uh, and there's a kind of a compromise bill of rights, a powerful legislature, an official religion, 12-er Shiism, so mi minority religions are kind of disenfranchised. Uh, only Muslims can be cabinet ministers. Uh, the Supreme Committee ensure, exists to ensure no law contradicts the Sharia. So that's going to be a legal area of contention. And the committee is to, going to sit until the appearance of the chosen one, the Mahdi. That's in the in the Bill of Rights. Um, Abrahamian uh, says the traditional gospel of Shiism had been incorporated into a modern structure of government derived from Montesquieu. The spirit of society, to paraphrase Montesquieu, had helped formulate the laws of the Constitution. So that's how he kind of sees it. The Shah doesn't like it. He says, how about we do the German model where um, the Shah appoints all ministers and is allowed to have a bodyguard of 10,000? <laughs> <laughs> Um, so <laughs> the, le the legislature leads huge protests against this counter proposal and there are mass meetings, but there are now also armed volunteers and somebody assassinates the uh, the prime minister. I mean, also somebody assassinates him at the end of August 31st, 1907. And the person who assassinated the assassin co promptly commits suicide. So he kills uh, the prime minister, commits suicide in front of the palace and the crate <laughs> you've never heard of this before dave but there's a huge demonstration of about 130 i mean 100,000 people all to pay homage to the assassin oh that's an unpopular prime minister yeah you know this is really really interesting so far it seems like there are quite a few who read french and are purposely modeling the french revolution Absolutely. I mean, I'm still impressed by the sit-in. That seems to be an original idea uh, of their own. But this constituent assembly is so like the French uh, states general, at which you know morphs into their national assembly. The election, the two-stage election, that's the same, and and the division into royalists, moderates, and and liberals, also very the same. But the the uh, the Shah, Muzaffar Shah, seems to be looking at a British or American model where, okay, they can have their lower house. I will appoint 
basically a house of lords and then I can, you know, block yeah. everything, um, procedural stuff. And then the big difference that I can see is there's no separation of church and state. Mm-hmm. Right? That's the right. French Revolution yeah. is uh, quite anti-clerical and we've seen that elsewhere, but not here. Yeah, there are anti-clerical movements, but they don't really go anywhere much. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. yeah. So the Shah uh, backs down again. <laughs> he appoints a liberal nobleman, uh, Abul Qasem Nasser al-Mulk, as the prime minister, and he takes a vow to respect the constitution. Mm-hmm. For no. <laughs> um, Against my will. So it's, again, uh, another example of a kind of very nonviolent kind of character here, like peaceful protests, mass meetings, general strikes. Uh, but then the assembly, eh, the assembly gets itself in trouble pretty quick. So they cut court expenses. Great. Eliminate most tax farming. Fine. Uh, the liberals want universal adult male suffrage. The moderates won't approve it. There are secular movements outside parliament arguing for girls schooling, uh, society for women, uh, minority rights. Um, but then the liberals' big overstep is when they cut too much. So they they don't just fire like the palace excesses, they fire thousands of palace employees. And so the palace oh. was like an engine of the economy in the city, right? Um, so, so they- two austerity measures. Yeah, they overdo the austerity measures. They, they keep taxes high, but the harvest is still bad. One British minister reports in October 1907 that bread is as dear as ever. So this gives an opening for the conservatives to come back. They have a big protest uh, at Cannon Square, protesting against equality, which they call an alien heresy. But once the threat of conservatism is there, the liberals come out and 100,000 people come out in favor of the assembly and constitution. So it's all, it's all being played out in the streets uh, with demos and counter demos. It's, mm-hmm. it's very interesting. This, I've seen this. This kind of thing happens in Iran even today, I think. Um, they respond but to mobilization by trying to show that they have even bigger numbers than the opposition. Um, so Edward Brown was told by a correspondent who was there, uh, he says, uh, it is typical of the movement that the rallying point of the people should be the House of Parliament and the mosque standing side by side. In and around these two buildings gathered the strongest throng which has ever been seen fighting the old, old battle against the powers of tyranny and darkness. Europeanized young men with white collars, white turban mullahs, Sayyids with the green and blue insignia of their holy descent, the Kula Namadis, uh, felt-capped peasants and workmen, the brown Abbas cloaks of the hum- humble tradesfolk, all in whose hearts glowed the sacred fire, gathered there to do battle in the cause of freedom. Who does not instinctively remember Carlyle's fiery chapter on the Bastille Day? Uh, me? <laughs> <laughs> I know they're talking about Thomas Carlyle. I know they're talking about him. Uh, but no, I also don't remember that fiery chapter. Um, So the Shah backs down yet again. Um, 1907, there's another uh, alienating thing, the Anglo-Russian agreement, which basically de facto partitions Iran into a southern zone controlled by England and a Russian zone controlled by Russia, or a northern zone controlled by Russia. Um, And the Shah is busy. He gets, he kind of organizes a coalition of tribal leaders as well as Cossacks 
to try to do a military coup, which they do in June 1908. So there's a Cossack brigade with some tribal contingents. There's a conservative mob loots the National Assembly and attacks some constitutionalist homes. The Shah is back in charge. He appoints uh, Russian Colonel Lyakhov as the military governor of Tehran, bans all public meetings, dissolves the National Assembly, and arrests 39 opponents. He has 20 of them killed and 19 of them jailed. So that's the, that's the, what stage is that? What stage are we at now? Counter-revolution. Yeah. So, uh, but the revolutionary, the constitutionalists don't back down. Uh, there are messages sent to the capital from Karbala and Najaf, which are now in Iraq, um, but they were in the Persian Empire back then. Uh, and they write, Allah has cursed tyrants. You may be victorious for the moment, but you will not remain so for long. Um, there are armed volunteers that start recruiting in Tabriz, Isfahan, Rasht, and then Tehran. Uh, Azerbaijan declares a provisional government, and there's a general strike in the central bazaar of Tabriz. In Tabriz, quoting Abrahamian, the constitutionalists using hand grenades imported from the Caucasus broke through the enemy lines, blew up their strongholds, and after heavy losses, routed their troops and leaders. But having liberated the whole city, they found themselves blockaded in by armed Shasavans and hostile peasants. So it's a real civil war we have. We have mm. constitutionalists fighting battles with the Shah's loyal loyalists. Uh, and some of them are military trained and some of them are just kind of street armed armed volunteers fighting in the streets in rasht there's a small force dozens of people including georgians and armenians from baku who plant the red flag uh, isfahan is captured by rebel tribal contingents who defect to the to the constitutionalist side oh in, in mashad the revolutionaries take the city and issue the first socialist program of the revolution of this um revolution they they pass a program arguing for or declaration arguing for universal suffrage a free press uh the right to strike the right to a free assembly land redistribution an eight-hour workday and one of their demands is two-year mandatory military service is that a progressive demand a people's army rather than yeah. relying on these cossacks, cossacks and <laughs> yeah, yeah. So July 13th, they win. The revolutionaries win again. July 13th, 1909, the constitutionalist leaders Yeprem Khan and Samsam al-Saltaneh reach Tehran, and armed volunteers open the main gates to them from the inside. The Shah runs to the Russian legation to take refuge, and the civil war is over. The delegates declare another grand assembly. They depose Muhammad Ali Shah. They appoint his 12-year-old son, Ahmed uh, as the Shah and Azad al-Mulk, an old liberal from the Qajar tribe, to be the regent. Um, they give constitutionalists the main cabinet positions, and they create a tribunal to try the leading royalists, executing five of them. Ooh. They lower the property qualification, abolish representation by class and occupation, reduce Tehran's allocation from 60 to 15 seats. The provinces get more seats, uh, 101, and they reserve four seats for minorities, one for Jews, one for Zoroastrians, two for Christian Assyrians and Armenians. The Second Assembly is convened August 5th, 1909. So a little bit better. They're doing a little bit better. And again, following the pattern of 
the French Revolution. I mean, the French Revolution, uh, the king hesitated to use his troops, but remember he was in contact with, you know, foreign powers, and he and he fled, and that simply gave power to the more radical revolutionaries. Right. So by trying to shut it down by armed force, all he did was empower the you know the uh, the more extreme revolutionaries so this is the jacobin stage sounds sounds like it <laughs> so november 1909 the shah instead of the shah kept his head he was pensioned off to europe uh they call yeprem khan one of the le- military leaders they call him the garibaldi of iran they make okay. him the police chief of tehran russian troops withdraw from the northern provinces and the the, liber- the constitutionalists organize a rural gendarmerie, a police force of about 12,000 with Swedish help. Uh, they reorganize tax administration with American help, a man named William, William Morgan Schuster. He's appointed in 1911 or 1909, I think. And he tries to use the gendarmerie to collect taxes. Schuster had a whole idea for recovering the tax and financial situation of the country, but he found himself frustrated by the intrigues of Britain and Russia. So he wrote a book published in 1912, and it's one of those books with a great subtitle, Dave. You want to hear the title of the book? (laughs) I suspect I'm going to hear it. (laughs) The Strangling of Persia, the story of the European diplomacy and Oriental intrigue that resulted in the denationalization of 12 million Mohammedans, a personal narrative. Okay. <laughs> I didn't get into this book yet. <laughs> I'll have to come back to it. How could you not read a book with that title? Uh, so by 1910, we've again polarized in the National Assembly into two parties. Uh, by 1911, the British and Russian troops are back in the cities. 1915, Ottoman contingents invade the Western regions. German agents are smuggling arms to the Southern tribes. So Iran didn't really manage to protect its sovereignty. And at the end of the world, at the end of the war, World War One, there's the Anglo-Iranian Agreement. Britain gets the monopoly of arms sales, military training, and administrative advisors. In the Nation, the American magazine, which still you can read today, the correspondent wrote the agreement has deceived nobody the moment its terms were made public everybody recognized that a virtual protectorate over persia had been established and that the british empire had in effect received another extension in 1920 there are autonomous governments installed in azerbaijan and gilan the tribal chiefs control kurdistan arabistan and baluchistan arabistan would have been basically iraq i guess uh in 1921 we have the Napoleon stage. <laughs> yeah. Colonel Reza Khan, uh, the Cossack division, he has a coup, and that begins the Pahlavi dynasty, which rules until 1979. He was in the Cossack division? I did yeah. not know that. I did not know that. Okay. And that is the story for another day. So, well, the so. 1911 intervention, The uh, it's interesting. I, I haven't read a lot of Russian sources on it. Yeah. But but the British sources are pretty clear that, well, you know, it was the Russians and they, we had to go along to protect France. <laughs> you know, reluctantly, reluctantly. Yes, they were dragged into it. Uh, and your Mr. Knox, uh, with his Anglo-Iranian uh, petroleum company, you know what that became, right? Uh, no. VP. 
Oh, that's British, British Petroleum. There, that's the origins. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know if we're gonna come back to Greece, Dave. There was a kind of a revolution called the Gaudi coup, which has yeah, something in uh, common with the Persian and Portuguese revolutions. Eleftherios Venizelos is the person. Who yeah, and he's. Wow, he's one of those greater Greece nationalists. We're going to meet him in a later episode. Okay. Um, I think we'll end up doing a post-war okay. uh, episode on Greece and Turkey uh, leading up to the exchange of populations. Okay. Um, yeah. No, he's, he's intertwined. Yeah, he's a big deal, that's for sure. Because I, I say that because now that we're switching to the Portuguese Revolution of 1910... Uh, for which I read a paper called uh, The Portuguese Revolution of 1910 <laughs> by, Douglas, by Douglas Wheeler in the Journal of Modern History. I don't know anything about Wheeler. I don't know anything about the journal, but the paper was pretty good. Um, and uh, and so the, the Wheeler mentions the Greek Revolution being an inf- uh, happen- happening around the same time. And right. Being an right. I, I'm, I'm not sure if the Portuguese Revolution was, you know, partially inspired by some of these other ones yeah maybe maybe i do know that it was a long time coming so i think the last time we looked at portugal was during the french revolution napoleonic wars yeah so when the french invaded in 1807 the royal family fled to brazil and that became a really really big deal because for a few years rio de janeiro was the portuguese capital that's incredible from 1808 to 1821 and and the the dates are really significant because napoleon was defeated in 1814 i know he tried to come back in 1815 but that was quickly squashed at waterloo the portuguese royal family stayed in brazil until 1821 (laughs) what What kind of message does that yeah, what kind of message does that send? What are you waiting for? So in 1820, there were uprisings in Porto and in Lisbon in August and September of 1820, and they were constitutionalist. So maybe that's why the king doesn't want to come back. He's going to face all this pressure to deliver a constitution. And and uh, Lisbon did not become the capital of Portugal again until Brazil declared its independence in 1822. So basically, Brazil says, yeah, we'll be independent. You can go home now. Go home. My God. So, yeah, uh, Portugal's ruled since 1640 by by the same dynasty, the Braganza dynasty. Right. And uh, 1910 is the end of that uh, with the first Portuguese republic. Uh, which rules from 1910 to 1926. Uh, so, yeah, the constitutional monarchy of 1822 gives the king quite a bit of power. Uh, and um, Wheeler says that all of these things, parties, elections, public opinion, and illiteracy is 77% in 1906. So all of these things are basically the illusion of representation. And the people that really rule are a few big families that control all the all the colonial business interests um, right. at uh, commanding heights of the economy, right? Yeah, and then you had a, a, a royal succession crisis to mess everything up. So King John, John the Sixth, died in 1826, 
he had left his eldest son Pedro as uh, king or emperor of of Brazil, yeah. which is now a separate country. So Pedro is now Pedro the Fourth of Portugal, but neither Portugal nor Brazil want to be united. They don't want to have the same monarch. So Pedro's going to abdicate. He's going to stay in Brazil. He's going to abdicate the Portuguese crown in favor of his seven-year-old daughter, Maria, with the condition that when she comes of age, she marries his brother, Miguel, her uncle. Oh. Yeah, that's a weird solution. <laughs> and then and then Pedro's constitutional reforms were um, more progressive, I guess, than the conservatives liked. So the absolutists, the landowners and the church, decided, well, let's skip that phase entirely. And they proclaimed Miguel king in February of 1828. So this led to a civil war, the liberal wars, it's called, very similar to what was going on in Spain for the next 50, 60 years. <laughs> right. Right. And uh, Pedro's liberals eventually won and they forced Miguel to abdicate and go into exile in 1834 and then they put his daughter she'd grown up by then so queen maria ii is now on the throne yeah and in terms of like political parties they have parties uh from 1851 to 1891 but they don't it's not really competitive they're they just have a what's called rotat rotativismo rotativismo i guess uh between the two monarchist parties um and like this rotation system, they're taking turns yeah they just take turns uh, they had that in Venezuela and Colombia too. I, I guess it's a common thing to have two parties just go in between, go back and forth. And if they if they agree, then you don't have to have messy <laughs> elections or fight okay. over who should be in power. It's your turn to feed at the trough. Um, I don't know which government was in power in 1890, but if you remember our scramble for Africa episode, Portugal had ambitions. In southern Africa so they they owned uh, Angola on the west coast and Mozambique on the east and they had drawn uh, what they called the pink map where they could connect their two colonies by taking over present-day Zimbabwe and Zambia so connecting the dots but this clashed with British connecting the dots you remember the railroad they wanted between Cairo and Cape Town <laughs> so this uh, this led to a, a diplomatic clash <clears throat> and uh, some warnings from Britain. And in 1890, the British basically gave Portugal an ultimatum. Stay out of Zimbabwe and Zambia. And the Portuguese government, I mean, what are you going to do? <laughs> they had to swallow it. But it led to the downfall of the Portuguese government. And uh, a big shock i think for portugal because you know britain was their oldest ally i mean most of it had favored most of the relationship had favored britain but you know there were commercial ties and diplomatic ties and you know now they've just betrayed you and dumped you on your back i didn't know this but the ricardo the economist he has this theory of comparative advantage i don't know if you uh if you know much about this but um, i remember the name 
So the idea is, <laughs> you're going to love this because that's a theory, okay, Dave? It's, a, it's one of these theories that, you know, it's universally applicable. It's not, it's not about a particular experience. It's, it's a theory. So Ricardo says, imagine two economies and they each produce two commodities and one of them produces wine and they both produce wine and wool and they're the stronger economy produces wine and wool cheaper than the weaker economy which produces both more expensive but in both cases the it's cheaper to produce wine than it is to produce wool so ricardo's theory shows that both countries benefit if the stronger economy focuses on wool and the weaker economy focuses on wine and then they trade so it's an argument defend defending specialization uh at the international level and for the stronger economy to produce the higher value products and the lower the weaker economies to focus on lower value products which is then justifies all the free trade doctrines that keep uh lock lower economies into uh producing primary commodities this <laughs> is david ricardo right this is david ricardo yeah, yeah. 19, early 19th century yeah. he worked for bankers and banking interests so what what people i don't know what i didn't realize until a couple of years ago was his everybody that he was that was reading his work knew that he was talking about britain and portugal yeah, yeah. the examples the you know the whole nature of the example was about britain and portugal at that time so they were always kind of intertwined and in this exploitative <laughs> economic relationship yeah uh, so portugal is financially in big trouble around you know at the end of the 19th century beginning of the 20th century the people are going to brazil on mass there's mm. even food shortages the economy is in a shambles there there is a republican movement and they have a secret society called the carbonaria and the king appoints a prime minister an incredibly unpopular prime minister joao franco in may 1906 joao franco is supposed to deal with all these crises and the growing republican movement and he dismisses parliament censors the press jails the opposition and begins a series of reforms to try to meet the republicans halfway so he makes everybody angry he hate the monarchists hate him for the reforms the republicans hate him uh for all the repression um as a uh, you know uh, and shortly after this king carlos is assassinated february 1st 1908 along with his heir so mm. second son manuel the second uh takes the throne manuel the second is nicknamed the unfortunate manuel the unfortunate <laughs> okay so you can tell how things are gonna go a little foreshadowing there <laughs> he dismisses joel franco and they hold a rigged election in august 1910 the monarchists win and the Republicans finally get the, the point. They get the idea that they're not going to be able to win through an election. And they decide to accelerate their timeline for revolution because they figure the monarchists are going to organize a counter-revolution now that they've won. So there's a strike wave starting in August in Lisbon and the towns. The Carbonaria are organizing armed uh, struggle. They're planning 
arm struggle. They want to try to get the army to mutiny, and they believe that they have several units in the army that are loyal to them. Uh, the plan is to go ahead, but one of the main Republican leaders, Miguel Bombarda, who's a doctor, he's assassinated by a patient on October 3rd. Ooh. But this leads to all kinds of theories that it was, you know, an assassination by the monarchists. So the Republicans, they have demonstrations. The armies put on alert and the Republicans say we have to do it now. They were planning to go a little later, but because of the assassination, they had to accelerate their timeline. Oh, no. I heard <laughs> no, no. It's I, I heard a, such a similar story about a, a rising in uh, in Colombo in Sri Lanka in I, 1980. I'm, earlier than the the message for the uprising was supposed to be uh, put over the radio. Yeah, and it was for a specific time. And some DJ put the message on like in the middle of the night. So half the revolutionaries said, that's the message, we go. And the other half said, no, the time is wrong, we don't go. Yeah. Something similar here, right? Yeah, there's cannon. The plan is there's going to be cannon fire uh, to signal the go on October 4th, 1910. And <laughs> the cannon fire isn't loud enough to reach certain parts of Lisbon. So oh. the military leader of the whole revolution, Admiral Candido dos Reis, kills himself in despair that night he couldn't have waited <laughs> he couldn't wait and see he had to kill himself that night uh but elsewhere republican soldiers take the initiative they take over their barracks and some ships but some of the ones they thought were going to be loyal proved uh not or that proved to be monarchists uh, stay monarchist or stay neutral there's not a lot of maneuver in this war but it's a short war with small arms and a little bit of shelling, there's a showdown in in the city at the Rotunda at the Avenida de Libertad. 450 to 500 men are Republicans are in the Rotunda and the government monarchists cannot seem to dislodge them. The Republicans also cut off communication between Lisbon and the provinces. They cut off train and telegraph communication. The monarchists later analyze it, their Monday morning quarterbacking, and they say that it was their mistake they didn't use their cavalry to, properly and so on uh but when two republicanized vessels start shelling the palace the king flees so the monarchists don't have orders either or anything to fight for at that point despite having 3500 men to the 450 republicans the trouble is there's a lot of armed people on the street that are republicans and the street is with the republicans so mm. Wheeler writes that few monarchists were willing to risk their lives. There's a lot of grenades. There's a lot of small arms on the street. So mm. the revolutionaries are have some kind of equality with weaponry. The king and the family get on a royal yacht on October 5th and sail away from Portugal. They switch to a British vessel at Gibraltar and go to England. The monarchist units promptly surrender, and after 35 hours of fighting with 65 to 100 dead and 728 wounded, the republic is proclaimed in Lisbon and all over the country. Most of the people who died were actually armed civilians, populares, 22 were soldiers, uh, a handful of them were officers. So towns all over proclaim the republic, and there are some reprisals against monarchists, but the army largely remains neutral. There's some anti-clerical and anarchist outbursts, like killing priests and breaking people out of prison, but the Republicans promptly suppress all of this. Let's keep this under control. 
<laughs> so the planks of the Republican government are a balanced budget, continued alliance with England, no social revolution, honor all contracts. And there's a brief dip in Portuguese stocks at the stock market, but they rally by October 8th. <laughs> so this is not a big revolution either. Um, what's interesting to me, I guess, to overall Iran and Portugal together is it's a lot like the Young Turk revolution. It's a little bit smaller than the Mexican revolution, and it seems to end up with a conservative, somewhat conservative force in power shutting down the radicals once they are secure. Yeah, I, I read a source that described the Portuguese revolution as uh, Jacobin, mm -hmm. uh, urban, and anti-clerical. But not too anti-clerical. <laughs> no, it sounds more like a liberal, a liberal yeah. revolution, right? Yeah, these are liberal constitutional revolutions. Kind of put the well, put the king in his place in Iran. Uh, take a republic in Portugal. Yeah, longstanding. But even a liberal revolution is is too much for the landowners and the church. So you you can almost predict the counter revolution that's coming, right? Yeah, yeah, but it's interesting how many times they crushed the counter-revolution in Persia through more mobilization. It's really a, a non-violent revolutionary's dream. They should all study Iran. Maybe Gandhi, maybe Gandhi was paying attention to this. I'll, we'll have to see when we get to interwar how much Gandhi was watching this, because this seems to be very Gandhian in terms of what they're doing. Hmm. They also don't redistribute land or proper. It is properly Gandhi. This is more Gandhian than Gandhi. <laughs> <laughs> so where to next? Another revolution. We're going to go to China. Oh, we're going east. 